Hi, I'm Dalton. And I'm Sam. This week on Fly on the Wall, we're bringing you an episode with Geopolitics fellow Rory Cooper, who we had the pleasure of interviewing in person back in the Geopolitics office. That's right. It's been so good to be back. Rory Cooper has worn many hats throughout his career in public service, from communications director for House Majority Leader Eric Cantor to being one of the first staffers of the Department of Homeland Security in October of 2001, to his current work as a partner at Purple Strategies, a bipartisan consulting firm that addresses brand reputation and management. So Sam, what did you find most interesting about this conversation? Well, one of the things that I really enjoyed with our conversation with Rory um, and his geopolitics discussion group is a little about this too, was the impact that political parties had in the early 2010s in reining in their members and actually pointing everyone toward policy goals and keeping it away from a party of celebrity and, and, and brand and making it more focused on policy. And he sort of talked about how much we've lost and how we can get back there. So that's what I really enjoyed in our conversation. But Dalton, what did you, what did you, what nuggets did you find in this that you enjoyed? Yeah, I, I thought his perspective on 9-11 was really interesting. Being one of the first people that's like tasked with this small department that's, you know, designed to prevent another 9-11 from happening. And he's working every day, just fearful that this is going to happen again. I mean, it was crazy just hearing his unique perspective working in Homeland Security in that time in October 2001. Uh, absolutely wild. There were so many gems in this interview. Um, overall, I'm just excited to be back, finally returning to in-person interviews right, again. Yeah. Uh, well, without further ado, we're going to play you that interview in just a second, but make sure that you're following us on social media. You can find us at Fly on the Wall Pod. You can also send us an email at our new official Georgetown email address, which again is flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. So Dalton, let's get into it. Thanks so much for joining us this week, Rory. Um, our first question is, you know, you've worked in executive and legislative offices on everything from space exploration to national security. What are the most necessary traits that you either had or developed working in government that helped you succeed? You know, I think the, the biggest trait that goes uh, underappreciated is just building relationships. Um, Washington is a really relationship-driven town. And you can be very smart and very um, polished about what you do and the expertise that you bring. But if you don't have those deep relationships, it, it, it's very hard to, uh, to make it actionable, to be um, engaged in, in the middle of the issues that you want to be in. Um, I think that from college all the way through your senior years in life, you're, you have to constantly be... Um, nourishing your relationships, building new ones, finding people who are going to help you and you can help them. Uh, that's really, I think, the, the key to success in politics, government, policy, and probably a lot of other facets of life. But you just really, um, you know, put real genuine care into the people who are going to support you and that you can support in, in life. It, you know, one, one uh, tip I always have for young people coming up in their career is to simply ask for help. When you ask somebody for help in your career, they become invested in you. And you want more people around you to be invested in you. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of other things that you can do to be prepared for a career. But um, building relationships is always going to be probably central to it. And so zooming in, I'm probably one of... Uh your most prominent relationships throughout your political career. You were 
communications director for Majority Leader Eric Cantor. Um, so bring us into those days. What were some of your favorite or most rewarding uh, moments working for Cantor? You know, I think that um, a lot of people work on Capitol Hill for bosses that they might not love, but they think are, um, you know, just it's a good job. Um, luckily, I'm not one of those people. I, Eric was and is... Um, just such a truly special and great person who is really focused on um, getting results about the people around him, about supporting the the House members. When he lost his primary, um, the tears on the floor of the House from his colleagues were genuine. And it wasn't because they had lost their party, a party leader. It was because they had lost somebody who had helped them build up their careers and had gone and you know, uh, above and beyond to raise money for them or to introduce them or to recruit them into the Congress or to help elevate them into chairmanship roles or to, you know, help them build themselves up. Um, and he did the same thing for staff. And, uh, you know, you want, when you're in a career like mine where you're focused on policy and politics for your life, you eventually want to be in the room where it happens, right? Just like Hamilton, you want to be in the room where it happens. And that's when I got that opportunity in life. And I wasn't disappointed because I got to be in the room with Eric and our senior staff um, around him. And they were all incredibly smart people, full of integrity. And we got to make some incredible decisions, some of them right, some of them wrong. But we got to make some incredible decisions surrounded by very thoughtful people and I'm incredibly honored to have gotten the opportunity to do it. Yeah. So obviously that was a very different era in Congress. It seems like the GOP of today is almost entirely different from back then. But we want to ask you, what principles or positions in your view do you think have actually held the GOP together through that transition from the early 2010s to today? Uh, God, that's a great question because it's a, because it's a difficult one. I, I don't think I don't think that there's really a principle that is holding the party together. I wish there were because because then I would probably still be a little bit more in the center of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I think that there is uh, analytically speaking, it's probably a distrust of the media, to be honest. Um, the distrust of, of national media has permeated throughout. It is it fueled Trump's rise. It continues after he's gone. And I think that, uh, you know, unfortunately, that remains one of the party's uh, rallying concepts. I, I don't this, I, I also agree that the media has bias issues, but I don't think that it's the foundation of a political party. Hmm. And so sort of going into that moment, you were sort of on the front lines of that shift in the early days from sort of the party of, of Eric Cantor and a lot of what the GOP of the early 2010s was toward a more Trumpian politics of the GOP now. So um, what sort of, what was that moment, what moment for you was it when you realized, um, oh, the shift is going on and what did it mean to you as someone who's worked in politics over the years? Uh, I mean, the shift, I think the shift for me was the 2016 convention. I mean, at that point, we knew Trump was going to be the nominee. Um, it's not like I was surprised at the outcome. Um, but 
it was I'd I'd been to most conventions before that in my career, and it was really where I felt that the energy of the party had transformed, and that it was really about this singular individual and not about anything else that the party had previously been fighting for. Um, it it become much more personality driven, and uh, you know I started thinking about. Like, well, what, what would I have even advised in this situation if I was still, you know, if, if, if Cantor and I were still up on Capitol Hill, what would I have even suggested we do in certain cir circumstances? And it became, some of those questions can't be answered. I, I just really didn't know. And I actually give a lot of credit to the people who did have to deal with that. You know, like, Speaker Ryan and others take a lot of flack for certain decisions that they made, but... You have to appreciate how complex and difficult those decisions were. So I think uh, I think that was really the moment. My, my, my brother was with me during uh, President Trump's acceptance speech at the convention. And about halfway through, I looked at him and I said, let's get out of here. And I, you know, I, that was it for me. Okay, so moving on a little bit to our next topic. We just commemorated the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. You were working in the executive branch at that time and were tasked with starting up the newly created Department of Homeland Security. What was it like entering a new department and, and leading it during such a huge national crisis? I mean, it's hard to communicate what that time was like to people who weren't living it. Um, but you have, to, you have to think about waking up every morning and thinking that you're about to get attacked again, which is a very, it's, it's a mentality that puts a lot of pressure on your success, right? Like the Office of Homeland Security was, was measured in the dozens and everybody looked at our group as responsible for preventing the next attack, um, which is an incredible amount of responsibility and, and you know, also an honor. Uh, I think that we, we had to make very fast decisions and and we we're reorganizing the government in a way that was the, the largest since the Department of Defense had been created. And we did it in a way that tried to limit the debate over it because you're basically moving 28 agencies into one. And if you're spending four months debating with Congress over each one of those, it's, it'll, it would have never happened. And so President Bush wisely chose to give Congress essentially a blueprint from which they could needle around the edges. And I got to be a part of creating that blueprint. Uh, I think that we got most things right. I think we got several things wrong. But what we really did was refocus the government's attention on better collaboration between agencies, on a newfound threat that so far, we've mostly protected ourselves against domestically. And, you know, it. there's also a romanticism to working in the White House, right? Like, there is, like, like at 8 o'clock at night where you walk out, you just had a hard day, but, like, it's lit up, and the, the building's lit up, and the Secret Service guards are saying goodnight to you, and you're walking to your car, and you're like, I cannot believe I get to work here. And... So it was, a, it was a mixture of all of that, like just inc incredible pressure and, and responsibility, 
but just like pinch yourself moments every day. Mm. And so zooming in on sort of finding that balance and, and, and establishing what the Department of Homeland Security was um, as it was created, you know, our generation talks a lot about today who've grown up in a post 9-11 world, the balance between freedom and security. And so I'm wondering what were conversations like then and now about that and your reflections on that today? Yeah, I mean, I think anybody who's going to look back at that era and think that we we landed more on the side of security than, um, than maybe personal liberty. Um, I think a lot of critics probably said that back then too. Uh, but again, you have to look at the environment. I mean, anybody who was in New York or Washington that day still often, probably every time they see a plane fly over, their mind immediately goes to 9-11. I know I, I do. Um, I live in Northern Virginia. The, the route into Reagan Airport and Adullis Airport both kind of go near my house. I see the planes flying low over Roslyn all the time. And, I, and my head every single time immediately goes to that. And that's 20 years later. Now put yourself in that situation. Um, I think we did our best to let, to balance it. I also think that it was, it felt more of a crisis. It felt like a crisis. It was a crisis. And, uh, you know, even the more senior leaders, I was obviously quite junior, the more senior leaders in the government would probably look back and say, we could have erred more on the side of personal liberty. You know, I, I, I like anybody else thinks that we made huge mistakes with TSA. You know, every time I take off my shoes and roll my eyes, like, <laughs> like you know, it, it didn't all go perfectly. But, um, but it was also about making sure that they couldn't do that to us again. And, um, and so far, that's been the case. Mm. And so sort of as we reflect broadly about our response to uh, the terror threats against the United States, we obviously recently just ended our 20-year engagement in Afghanistan. And so I'm wondering what your general reflections are on that war, what was gained and what was lost from a national security perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge question. I, I think, again, if the if your overriding objective is to prevent attacks on the homeland, then that part of the mission was a success. The idea was that we were going to fight the terrorists who wanted to harm the West and harm the United States on their ground rather than ours. And we did that. We dismantled Al-Qaeda We've, we had a home base to go after ISIS. We, um, we created, we, the byproduct of that was that we created a more prosperous and liberating environment for women in the Middle East. And you can't overlook that. Um, but we also created a lot of harm, right? We, like, like I think... Objectively speaking, you look back at civilian deaths as uh, as a tragedy of that war. You look back at the effects that our troops have had since coming home um, and how we care for them and how we understand what they went through. Uh, and I also understand that like people just wanted it to be over. You know, it's 20 years. I think that we made a mistake in how we withdrew from it. I, I think that a small force of 25 to 5,000 troops would have stabilized that situation enough for the Afghan army who probably needed another 20 years to be able to really stand on their own. 
if ever. But, you know, it's okay that I felt it was okay for the United States to have a presence um, in order for us to maintain that control. Now we've lost it. The women in Afghanistan are living back in Sharia times as if the last 20 years didn't happen. We have allies and Americans still behind enemy lines that were not evacuated appropriately by the Biden administration. I thought the evacuation was a complete disaster. I have no idea why we did it the way we did. It makes no sense. And it, it angers me, frankly, because it, aside from just the logistical mess of it all, it also showed our allies around the world that we can't be counted on and that we can't be trusted. And we already had four years of that eroding under President Trump. And then now President Biden's doing it. We're just continuing to make these same mistakes over and over again. It's frustrating. So now that we have withdrawn from Afghanistan, what do you see as the national security threats like of today or, or of the future? From the Middle East, possibly still, to China, to cyber, what are the issues that we need to confront going forward? Uh, well, I, you, I think you hit the nail on the head with cyber. I think that uh, China and Russia are going to continue to hit us with cyber attacks, but also by manipulating information online. Um, we know for a fact regardless of your partisan stance or who you think that they're trying to favor, but we know for a fact that Russia and China engage in farming disinformation into our, into our media environment. And it's dangerous. Uh, it fuels anti-vaccination. It fuels distrust in our elections. It fuels uh, uh, a polariz the polarization like they are attacking us from within and we are kind of allowing it to happen. Um, so I think that our cybersecurity and our cyber awareness um, is probably the, the most critical emerging threat. I do think that we still face traditional threats, um, terrorism being one of them. I'm certainly worried about the resurgence of Al Qaeda and ISIS-K. Um, I also worry about domestic terrorism uh, as our polarization is fueled. Uh, and then we frankly just have good old fashioned, normal, you know, global threats. Uh, <laughs> like Pakistan is a, is, is some, is a country that America needs to be more focused on. North Korea remains a, you know, a problem. Like, those, those normal geopolitical things that I grew up with in the 80s that still exist. But we also just have all these non-nation non actors that we also have to concern ourselves with. And who's supporting them? You know, like, like non-nation actors who are actually supported by Russia, but it's three lines deep. You know, you have to consider all these things. It's, it's, um, you know, it's, a tough, it, 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 it's a tough time for America to start turning its back on our alliances. And that's why I hope that um, we really refocus on making sure that alliances like NATO are as strong as possible because we're going to need our friends. So you mentioned polarization and its effect on foreign policy. But I'm wondering, if just zooming in on that even more, I mean, we've, it seems like every week there's yet another thing on Capitol Hill or in the political dialogue that used to be a consensus and isn't anymore. I mean, just recently with the debt ceiling talks. Um, and so I'm wondering, from your perspective, 
What is different about today's polarization and how has that changed both in our country and in the halls of Congress? Yeah, I mean, I, well, well, and I don't think debt ceiling's ever been a consensus item, <laughs> uh, but but I hear I hear what you're saying. The uh, the incentives for what types of leaders that we elect have changed, and we don't really demand that people come here and legislate anymore. We demand that they come up here and they kind of entertain us, mm. and and when it becomes kind of a game, uh, then you 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 then everybody involved loses we have a more polarized country right now because we're looking at politics like sports and not about legislating uh if you come up to if you came up to washington 20 years ago and you wanted to move ahead you did so by becoming a part of the team and getting good committee assignments and raising money for your colleagues and helping the party grow None of that matters anymore as an elected representative. If you're in the House of Representatives, you can you can go off and do your own thing. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not on any committees. She doesn't do any legislating. She doesn't do her job at all. And she'll probably get reelected. She's going to win a ton of small-dollar donations from people all over the country who listen to her crap and think, but at least this person's up there saying it like it is. We have more and more members like that. And then what happens is the serious members who actually want to legislate, they don't want to be around the circus anymore. They retire. And so you also lose all that expertise. And so you get a younger Congress with less expertise and no incentive to be serious about their job. So of course the country's polarized because we're creating a circus in Washington and then we're expecting them to take sides. Uh, it's going to require leadership, adult leadership, to get us out of that. I don't think it's on the horizon. It's going to take a time. It's going to take younger people to help force that change. And it's going to, frankly, take older people to become disengaged in politics. Because I think that the more I speak to students like y'all and at Georgetown... I, I'm way more optimistic than when I talk to older voters. So we've talked about how Congress has changed a lot in recent years. On a more optimistic note, what do you think are the potential areas of future bipartisanship, or do you see any other ways to fix our political division? Well, I do think that bipartisanship happens way more than we give it credit for. I mean, most of the votes that go through the House and the Senate actually pass overwhelmingly, just like most Supreme Court decisions are unanimous. We focus on, America loves to focus on the division. The news media focuses on it. We, that's what we love to talk about at Thanksgiving. It's, it's, let's, let's really argue. America likes to argue. <laughs> um, with that being said, like there are, it, it's not about creating bipartisanship, bipartisan consensus around polarizing issues because you were never going to agree on the issues, right? Like Democrats want to get guns off the street. That is a, major issue if you're a Democrat. Republicans don't want to even debate that issue. They feel that the status quo is fine. Well, maybe not fine, but not worth opening up the can of worms. There's not going to be an agreement that just pops up out of that issue because we don't agree that it's an issue we should be debating. The same goes for a lot of other polarizing issues. I do think that you're going to be able to find 
I think that you could find more consensus if we tried. I look back at in 2007, post Katrina, the wars are going poorly. The division between Republicans and Democrats are, is bad. And President Bush, along with a slew of Democrats in Congress, passes the largest energy bill in 25 years on ISA, the Energy Independent Security Act. Huge bipartisan achievement that put some climate change goals on track for Democrats, put some economic goals on track for Republicans. There was lots of compromise. Uh, the bill got over the finish line because Democrats basically gave up their anti-fossil fuel stance going into it. And there was this huge signing ceremony filled with Democrats and Republicans. The point of that is to say, there's not like ever a point where you can't try something bipartisan. It just requires leadership to attempt it. And right now, Joe Biden has decided, I have to get my entire agenda passed through this 50 vote re reconciliation method, which lends itself to no bipartisanship. I hope once we're through this episode, he looks back at periods like that and his involvement on bills like ISA and sees opportunities to try to forge something to show America that Republicans and Democrats can still work together. And I think he'll have that opportunity because I think Republicans will win the midterms, at least in the House, and he'll be forced to do that. Mm. And so sort of talking about how we move toward a more consensus-driven politics and finding areas of common ground to work on, um, you're obviously here at the Institute of Politics at Georgetown um, hosting discussion groups with students on the structure of Congress and of government um, and how we make our government better. So I'm just wondering, what are you hoping, to, what conversations are you hoping to have? I know this week you had a conversation with students on the filibuster. Um, so tell us about the real issues that you're excited to be discussing this semester at Georgetown. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited for our discussion groups because, you know, if, if you can only come to one, that's great. We're going to have a great discussion. But if you can come to a lot of them, what you're going to start seeing is that they all somewhat interconnect. If we're trying to fix polarization, if we're trying to get more serious people in government, if we're trying to solve issues in a better way, there's not one light switch we can flip on or off to fix the problems that we currently have. It's all interconnected. So if you are upset about the Electoral College existing, what it's, it's not really, you're not really mad at the Electoral College. You're mad that your candidate wins the popular vote and doesn't win the presidency. <laughs> and what you're mad is you're not achieving something that you want to achieve. The filibuster, you're not mad that there's a 60 vote consensus required. You're mad that you're never getting it, <laughs> you know? You're, and, and so like it's, this is constant like idea of like, how do these things, how do we look at all these things in a deeper way? And not just about what I want right now, but what will really help adjust the system in a way that's positive for everybody involved and also helps you get your solutions long-term. I want students to think about what the other side could do with the reform. So when we were talking about the filibuster, you know, one of the, if you're a progressive, you wanna get rid of it right now so you can pass voting rights reform. Totally get that. Okay, well, let's say Donald Trump and Republican House and Senate exist as it did three years ago, and they pass pro-life legislation. Now are you okay with the filibuster being gone? Like, think about these choices and these dynamics. And 
I don't want anybody to feel like they've been convinced one way or the other. I want them to walk away from these discussion groups learning new ways to think about these issues so when they're in their political careers and leading this government, most of these issues are still going to be around and they're likely the ones that are going to be in charge of fixing them. I want the students to come away with a deeper thinking of how they would approach that from a strategic level in their careers and then just as a personal level, how you start kind of putting the shoe on the other foot and thinking about what your opponents, uh, how your opponents view the world. Mm. So now we're going to move into our last part, the lightning round. So quick questions, quick answers. Yes. Yeah, so um, according to your Twitter bio, bio, you are an avid Detroit sports fan. Um, I, for better or for worse, am currently roommates with a diehard Lions fan myself. Um, <laughs> and so I guess my question for you is, how do you keep hope in times of disarray, <laughs> and how badly do you miss Matthew Stafford? Uh, uh, I, I don't miss Matthew Stafford in the sense that, like, I, I, I'm happy that he's going to have a chance to succeed. Yeah. Um, Detroit has a habit of the best football players in the world just determining to quit the sport altogether <laughs> than to keep playing on our pathetic franchise. We are, yeah, and Barry Sanders, yeah. and I, we're cursed. Um, when you're born into fandom, you, you just stick with it. Like nobody's going to be happier if we ever win the Super Bowl than Lions fans, or perhaps maybe Browns fans. Um, it might never happen. Uh, but you know, my dad, my dad raised me with a good, healthy perspective on the Lions and I've spent a lot of Thanksgivings leaving at halftime and hitting the bar early. <laughs> we, we, we can solve polarization in Congress, but the Detroit Lions, hard to say. (laughs) So next question. Given your varied experience in government and and policy arenas, what position or job did you most enjoy? Oh, I mean, like, without a doubt, there are three jobs that really mattered to me. The first was the White House, hands down. Just the experience is impossible to even um, describe, to be able to have that honor and also just the, the love to be around it. And then obviously Eric being with Eric Cantor on the Hill and being in the Capitol around such important decisions and also really feeling the impact of those decisions like passing the Gabriella Miller Kids First Research Act, which to me will always be one of the things that makes me most proud. And then, and then frankly, finally, being at Purple Strategies. Purple Strategies uh, brings Republicans and Democrats together in a way that is really refreshing to bring all these different perspectives, kind of what we've always wanted to happen in Washington. We've kind of created in this agency and I get to now help, you know, a lot of people solve difficult challenges uh, with a really extraordinary group of people. And so, you know, I think um, I've been really fortunate along my career to have many great opportunities, not, not just one. Mm. And so our last lightning round question, um, you're of course our first in-person interview since coming back from the pandemic. Um, Fly on the Wall is certainly glad to be having in-person interviews again, but what are you most excited for now that the world is reopening? What did you miss the most? I miss concerts the most. (laughs) Um, I miss live sporting events and concerts. Uh, The live sporting events I haven't really gotten back into yet. Uh, Like I went to uh, some baseball games, but I'm really excited for hockey season. The Red Wings are facing the Caps in Washington on October 27th, which is my wedding anniversary. 
And my wife, my <laughs> wife is uh, is going to allow us to spend it <laughs> at a hockey game. Well, I gotta win it. Uh, and you know, and, and I'll be, you know, I'm seeing uh, all of my favorite groups and uh, and going to more concerts in a very compact amount of time than I ever have. I just love being in big crowds, listening to music, or watching sports, and mm-hmm. that's by far, by far the greatest thing. Luckily, we had a great group of friends that helped get get us through the pandemic. And our little pod, mm. and uh, and so I didn't feel like I missed that much until until I was back at my first concert listening to Dead and Co. and be like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I needed this. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week. It was an awesome interview, and we're just so pleased to have you. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Hoya Saxa. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our conversation with GU Politics fellow Rory Cooper. Uh, it's so good to be back doing in-person interviews. We have so many more folks that are going to be flying by with us this season from other GU Politics fellows to movers and shakers across Washington, D.C. So make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have tons of new episodes dropping this semester. So follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod for the latest updates or shoot us a line at flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. And see you soon as we continue season 10 of Fly on the Wall.